Holy Heavenly Father, how we love you. Thank you for bringing us together tonight. Thank you for your word before us as as though spread out like a feast before us. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and my sisters as well as myself that we would take in all that we can, that we would feed on and stuff ourselves on your word. And Father, not to worry about the things on the table that maybe we couldn't eat because we were too full, but just to take what you have for each one of us. I ask that your word would not come back to you empty, but would succeed in the matter for which you send it. And that you'll bless this time together uh, in your name and to your name and for all of your good purposes. Holy Spirit, we seek your counsel and your wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Revelation chapter 20. What we're going to be doing as we come toward the end of the of our study through Revelation, by my calculations, the last actual teaching is going to be Sunday... June 16th, and then on that Wednesday of that week, we're going to do a Q&A. So it's just bring your questions. Anything that you've wondered, been confused about, that's been problematic or you're uncertain of, and we're just going to spend that Wednesday evening talking it through and answering questions. Just have Bibles open and, and we'll shoot from the hip and if I don't have the answer we'll ask if someone else has the answer and we'll just kind of work through that together and uh, try to seek clarification alright so that'll be that final Wednesday so that would be the 19th I believe does that sound right 16, 17, 18, 19 June 19th will be Q&A and uh, then I'm going to be taking a breather I will be here but between Revelation and the start of our next study <laughs> I'm going to take a little just catch my breath and so Jake is going to teach on that Sunday and then the following Wednesday we're going to have a worship night and then we'll start into the book of Genesis before we're even done with June so I'm excited to just keep going and that's kind of the point and that's what I was saying at communion is that we keep going that Jesus wants to motivate us forward and not backward And we don't live our lives in the past and we don't live our lives either on the good things that we've done in the past or on the failures behind us, even moments behind us. Jesus says, fix your eyes on me. And by looking to him and seeking first the kingdom, well, guess what? The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is not behind us. The kingdom's out ahead of us. So if I fix my eyes on Jesus and I seek first his kingdom, guess where that leads me? Forward. Always forward, always forward in Jesus. And it doesn't matter. Even with the minas and the talents that we talked about, it doesn't matter how many minas you've spent in the past. You know, because we don't earn our salvation anyway, do we? It doesn't matter how many talents you've spent in the past. It's, what are you doing going forward? Look forward, don't look back. And Jesus invites us to that kind of living, I believe. Well, we're in Revelation 20, and we're going to pick up where we left off and start working our way through the rest of this. I I was talking with John Linus earlier and and told him, you know, I think the next time we do a study through Revelation, we ought to do like the whole thing on a weekend. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, a weekend retreat through Revelation. And we just power through it. And there will be a lot of little incidental things. We've covered a lot. I've taken time this time. I was encouraged to do so. To really take our time and go point by point as much as we could. Try not to miss anything. And I'm sure we have anyway. But there's also some value in getting big picture. You know? And even what we're talking about tonight. Getting the big picture. We only got three verses in, roughly, to chapter 20. We stopped after talking about the first resurrection. Well, there's more. 
And, and, and context is necessary. So I'm going to try and pull in a little bit of what we've talked about, see if we can get some context for these things. But let's begin in verse 6 of Revelation chapter 20, which is a single verse that is good to know, good to return to and be reminded of. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. A thousand years. The millennial kingdom, the kingdom age, the millennium, whatever you want to call it. It has many different names, but there are three primary perspectives. And I glanced by these on Sunday, mentioned these, and I thought I'd go a little further into them tonight just so you can have that perspective. Three ways of looking at the millennial kingdom that Bible scholars and Bible students and Christians uh, tend to lean toward. And I lean very definitely I don't even lean. I believe in one of the three. I think the other two are bunk. But I'll give them to you anyway. So, three perspectives. And it tells us this. It tells us at a minimum that people recognize that the Bible does teach a kingdom. Whatever your perspective is of the kingdom, the Bible teaches a kingdom. And the Bible teaches a king. The king of kings and lord of lords. But some spiritualize that kingdom. They call it kind of a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an experiential thing. These are the people who are into amillennialism. Amillennialism. Awe in the Greek negates the word. Therefore, amillennialism is there's really no thousand years. Amillennialism assumes that the millennial kingdom is not literal, but that we are currently in the kingdom age. That this is the kingdom... And that the thousand years talked about six times, mind you, in Revelation 20, well, that's just allegorical. It's, it's just spiritual. Amillennialism argues that Revelation 20 is the only chapter in the Bible that gives a precise duration of a thousand years. If it's in the Bible one time, isn't that good enough? And maybe it is listed as an actual thousand year period only in Revelation chapter 20, but it's mentioned again six times in Revelation chapter 20. I think I said recently six being the number of a man, that's how many times it takes for us to hear it to start thinking, well, maybe there's something to it. A thousand year reign as described in Revelation 20, but the amillennialist says, eh, it's not conclusive of a time frame. The amillennialist spreads the thousand-year reign of Christ described by John across the past 2,000 years of the church age in the words of that great Middle-earth theologian Bilbo Baggins, like butter scraped over too much bread. That's kind of the amillennialist view. Now, I poke fun in it because it doesn't fit the Scripture. It spiritualizes it, again, allegorizes it. It doesn't hold up. Under the weight of Scripture, Hebrew and New Testament, it doesn't hold up under the weight of history, past, present, and as we will see, future. Amillennialism doesn't hold up. It does not fit the biblical record. Well, then there's post-millennialism, as you might assume, post, after. And this perspective has had surprising resurgence in churches today promoting Kingdom Now theology. Or dominionism. Uh, This is very big in the new apostolic reformation. This is the whole mentality that that Jesus will return post 
the millennium. After the millennial kingdom, Jesus will come back. That doesn't make any sense at all because that assumes that for a thousand years there's a kingdom without a king. But the assumption is that the church will bring the kingdom. That the church will build the kingdom. That the church will establish the kingdom. And maintain the kingdom. And this view was first advocated by St. Augustine in the 4th century. Prior to that, this was not the view of the church. The early church fathers, as I'll, I'll explain momentarily. But Augustine came along, and in the 4th century, guess what was happening? Rome was no longer at odds with the church. In fact, Rome and the church had become good bedfellows. They were mano y mano. They were in it together. They were walking, lockstepping, if you will, side by side, the church and Rome together. So the church no longer persecuted, now has this new buddy in Rome, and the theologians begin to think, hey, we're now settling into a time of peace and prosperity, and the church is actually rising in government. Therefore, the church is establishing the kingdom. And so this thousand-year reign, again, six times in Revelation 20, began to be allegorized as, well, maybe it's a picture And they believed back then that the thousand years was then and was established by the apostles at the beginning and now was growing and would last for a thousand years. Problem is now we're 2,000 years in. But it's an allegory, so it's not a literal thousand years. Same as amillennialism, postmillennialism does the same thing. Postmillennialism must assume that the heart of man is good and capable of peace and that the church ultimately will conquer the world in righteousness. So I just ask you, how are we doing? I mean, let's just be honest with the real world as we see it and the church as we know it. Amillennialism. Now we're in the kingdom. Generically, spiritually, post-millennialism, we're building the kingdom and we'll hand it over to Jesus when we're good and ready. Or premillennialism. Premillennialism. You go all the way back to the first and second century. People say, well, it wasn't around until the mid-19th century with John Nelson Darby and the Plymouth Brethren. They came up with this bizarre teaching of, of premillennialism. Not true. It had a different name in the first and second century. It was called Kielism. Not because of the car. <laughs> See, I, I drive a Kia, so it's kind of my own Kielistic view of the world. Kielism comes from the word Kelia, which is the Greek word for a thousand. And in the first and second century, Kielism was what was taught by the church and by the early church fathers. It was the singular view of the early church fathers. When we look back at manuscripts and ancient writings of that time, men like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and Tertullian, these are all names that I've mentioned before earlier on in our study. These guys were around in the mid-100s and into the 200s. They taught the perspective of Kielism, the thousand-year reign of Christ, that Jesus Christ was first going to come back, take His church home. Irenaeus preached on the rapture of the church. And then the church would come back with Jesus and reign for a thousand years. Kielism. So anyone tells you, and you may hear, in fact, I heard this recently on a YouTube uh, interview, Someone was saying, yeah, well, uh, the whole rapture thing didn't even come up until Darby in the late night. No, that's not true. It's not true. In fact, you can go back further than Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, and Tertullian. You can go to the New Testament scriptures and see what the church taught about the millennial kingdom. 
we've just been doing it the last couple of weeks. You can see what the church taught about the rapture of the church. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14, verses 1 through 3, Matthew 24. Look at what the Bible says. Listen to what Jesus taught, and Paul taught, and Peter taught, and John taught. These are the earliest of the church fathers, and they all clearly taught a literal millennial kingdom. Premillennialism teaches exactly what Revelation 20 says, that Jesus will come back, we will come with Him, and He will restore the world to pristine conditions, establishing Himself a thousand-year rule and reign on the earth. That's premillennialism. So don't confuse your your terminology here. Pre-tribulation, like I said on Sunday, pre-tribulation is talking about the rapture of the church before the tribulation. Then the tribulation happens. Premillennial now happens before the millennial kingdom. Jesus comes back. Are we clear on that? Premillennial. And and you might say, well, I don't want to be labeled. Well, that's fine. Neither do I. But I believe what I believe. Premillennialism again teaches Jesus, the Messiah, will establish His kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this, not the zeal of the church. Oh, so we shouldn't do anything. I didn't say that. What I said is, it's the zeal of God that will establish the kingdom. We just come along for the ride. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they came together and they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And what did Jesus say? It's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Jesus didn't deny. He affirms that the kingdom is going to happen. But it's not for you to worry about that, He's saying to the apostles. You've got a different job. By the way, premillennialism is also the most Jewish perspective. Amillennialism denies the Jewish perspective. Postmillennialism denies the Jewish perspective. But premillennialism embraces it. As I said earlier, and I'll repeat this, strangely, after the 4th century, and Augustine and the, the postmillennial view began to rise, Keelism went dormant. In fact, if you look at church history and look at documents and teaching from about the 4th century all the way up to the late 1800s, you didn't hear much about premillennialism. Why? People didn't think it applied. Bible study was not too strong, at least globally. The premillennial view re-emerged in the late 1800s, which is interesting to me. What else reemerged in the late 1800s? Zionism. So at the same time that suddenly the church began talking about the premillennial return of Jesus, the Jewish people re- were returning to Israel. A-, a-, a hunger, a desire for the homeland was growing like it hadn't grown for 1800 years in the Jewish heart. And I don't believe that's coincidental that those two things were happening simultaneously. And a half century after all this began to surge, both premillennialism and pre-tribulation views and Zionism growing up together, surging together, half century later, Israel was born a nation in a day. Isaiah 66, verse 8. One more thing about premillennialism. It is the only view of the three 
that accepts a literal binding of Satan. And that's vital. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter said in the first century, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. One verse, and Peter debunks the idea that Satan is in chains right now. He's not. He's prowling right now. He is awake and alive and on the move on the earth in the church age. Peter said, resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Hey, there can be no kingdom, according to this word, where Satan is free to roam. So the kingdom has not begun, because Satan is rampant on the earth. So the millennial kingdom, again, promises to be a thousand years of unparalleled peace and prosperity by the righteous rule of Jesus from Jerusalem over all the earth. And I want to give you three Old Testament passages to check this out. Go back to the book of Joel, chapter 3, verse 16. Joel three sixteen. Joel, chapter 3, verse 16. Which begins, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the brooks of Judah will flow with water and a spring will go out from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim or the valley of Acacia trees. And that's really interesting because that parallels Ezekiel 47. But most of the whole chapter there, verses 1 through 12, Ezekiel 47, that describes this river coming out of the threshold of the temple, spreading out and heading down to the Dead Sea and out to the Med Sea. And this amazing river that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and heading down toward the Dead Sea. Guess what that is down there? You know what grows really well in that arid, dry region? Acacia trees. So the Valley of Shittim is is heading down that direction. So that's what Joel is talking about. Skip ahead to Amos. Just one book over. Amos chapter 9. And in Amos chapter 9, verse 11, tells us, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, or the fallen tabernacle of David. I'll wall up its breaches. I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, let me ask you, do you know what he's talking about, the tabernacle of David? What, what is that? What's he going to wall up? What's he going to rebuild? Temple. temple. What's the temple in? What's the city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So he's talking about Jerusalem, and he's going to raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in days of old. Second question in verse 11, who's going to do that? I will. So who's I? God is speaking here. This is not the church rebuilding. This is not the church preparing for the kingdom. This is Jesus Christ doing it. And in verse 12, after saying, I will rebuild it as in days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold, 
Days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. You're barely going to be getting the fruit out of the ground before someone else is coming along with seed to plant and more fruit is growing. It's going to be that productive. And he says, when the mountains will drip sweet wine, like Joel had said, and all the hills will be dissolved, and I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their fruit, and I will plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them. They were rooted out in 722 and in 586 and then in 70 AD. And God says, never again. A lot is going on in Israel right now. Keep watching. Pay attention. Things are happening in Israel. Netanyahu, who seemed to have secured prime ministership, could not make the deal. And right now, they may be going back to elections. It's not even sure what's going to happen. The country's in upheaval as far as leadership is concerned. But I promise you that Israel will stand until Jesus comes. I do not believe that we will see a destruction or a loss of Israel. Because God promised no more. He promised He's bringing them back into the land and He's going to establish them. And that's already beginning to happen before our very eyes. He says, I will plant them on their ground, on their land. They will not again be rooted out from the land which I have given them, says the Lord their God. Skip over to the right to the book of Zechariah. A couple more books to your right. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 7. Zechariah 2, 7, which begins, Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. By the way, that parallels Revelation 18, verse 4. Come out from her, come out from her, my people, as God is calling people out of Babylon. So now he says to his people Israel, Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Me. This is Jesus talking. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming. And I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. And then I will dwell in your midst. And you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion. Well, wait a minute. Is the Lord going to send someone or is the Lord himself going to possess Judah? Yes, because the Lord God sends Jesus, the Lord who's the Son. Both God, right? So he goes back and forth between saying the Lord's going to do this and I'm going to do this because I, as Jesus, is the Lord. The Lord will possess Judah and his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his habitation. The kingdom, my friends, must come. Because God promised it again and again and again. And I've given you a sampler tonight and on Sunday and last week. A sampler of different prophecies that are of the coming kingdom. The kingdom must come. Jesus must come because He said He would. He must rule and reign from Jerusalem because He said He would. But after this, after the thousand years, Satan must be released. 
Go back to Revelation 20. While you're turning there, listen again to the first three verses. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, the abuso, and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. Note this, after these things he must be released for a short time. He must be. The word must in the Greek, it's the present active indicative of the word and it literally means it is necessary. The word is day, if you're noting this, D-E-I in the Greek. Day. He must be. It is necessary that Satan be released. Why? Why should this happen? I remind you, and a couple of things to note here, that after a thousand years of the best of all possible ages, humanity, when given the choice to rebel, will do it. Humanity will yet rebel. This necessary release of Satan after a thousand years is going to prove two things. Number one, it will prove beyond the shadow of a doubt the eternality of God's grace. Proving grace forever. That there will be no one of human heritage in heaven who will claim anything other than God's grace as proof of their eternal citizenship. Nobody will say, yeah, I did well in the kingdom. Nobody's going to say, I was a good person, that's why I'm here. Nobody, every last person in heaven, will say, I am here for one reason and one reason alone, the grace of God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And by the way, this eternal picture of God's grace, all heaven is going to know this. Not only saved individuals, you and me, those who are human and who are saved by Jesus and glorified and caught up and and with Him on into eternity after the kingdom. Not just us, but in the highest of the heavenly places, among the highest of the heavenly beings, grace will be comprehensible. And I take you back to this passage just because it's so mind-blowing and so marvelous. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, the very least of all saints, Paul writes, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. So this whole concept of grace, God's grace that He gives you, that He gives me, it's not just for us to understand, it's also that God can teach, that He can take to school all of the angelic beings who themselves cannot quite comprehend grace. They've never needed it. They don't know what it means. And even choice. I mean, being in the presence of God through all eternity, created to worship Him. And yet, watching human beings, and and the Bible talks about angels longing to look into these things, longing to understand these things. And God is taking the angels to school on the concept of grace. And you and I are the subjects. And there in heaven, all heaven will understand, finally, oh, that's grace. You will be a living, breathing, moving testimony in heaven of the grace of God. 
So that heavenly beings will go, wow, that's grace. So the eternality of grace is the first reason why Satan must be released. Because when he's released, there's got to be a choice. And we will see who is saved by grace and who is not. But secondly, and this is mind-blowing to me as well, the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. Past, looking back 2,000 years, his blood has been sufficient to save everybody across 2,000 years who has trusted in him. Amazing. Present, that if every single man, woman, and child on the face of the planet today turned toward Jesus in faith, his blood would be enough. To cover the over 7 billion people in the population of this world, his blood would be enough. All sufficient, past, present, and get this, even future. Into the millennial kingdom. That people living... Children born, people who are mortal in that age, are still being saved by the grace poured out in the blood of Jesus in the previous age. The all-sufficiency of the blood of Christ. John said, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. The all-sufficient blood of Jesus. That's not universalism. That's not saying that He's just going to save everybody. It's saying His blood is sufficient to save everybody. Every human in history could be saved by the blood of Jesus it is so pure and righteous and perfect. And by the way, that same blood all through eternity will never let you down. There will never be a point in eternity, gazillions upon gazillions of time specks into the future. You will never have a point in the presence of God where the blood of Jesus is starting to wear off. Oh man, I'm just not as covered as I used to be. All sufficient, all eternal blood of Jesus in the sacrifice of the cross. That's how big it is. Now we come to the result of the devil's release in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. And will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. And if you've studied Ezekiel 38, you've heard this phrase before, Gog, Magog. Maybe you've heard prophecy buffs talk about the Gog, Magog invasion of Jerusalem. You need to understand that this is now an analogy of that. What do you mean? Well, it can't be the same invasion. Some have tried to say that it is. Oh, well, maybe the Gog-Magog war of Ezekiel 38 is actually happening at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. No. They're two different scenarios. Well, why does he call it Gog-Magog? Hold that thought. First, let me explain. It cannot be the same war, first of all, chronologically. Because the Gog-Magog invasion looks to happen before the tribulation, before the kingdom. In fact, if you read Ezekiel... Time-wise, Ezekiel 38, Gog-Magog invasion. Ezekiel 40 to 48 is now the kingdom. Kingdom comes after Gog-Magog and not the other way around. Geographically, Ezekiel's Gog-Magog invasion, and, and let's break it down here, Ezekiel chapter 38 verse 2 tells us exactly who's involved and tells us about Gog of Magog. 
What do you mean? Listen to this. Thus says the Lord God, Ezekiel 38, verse 2. Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh. Gog is a prince. Gog is a leader, a world leader, perhaps at the time, of a prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, which scholars understand to be, Rosh is Russia, Meshach, is literally from a people, the, the region was called Meshech, Meshech, the people who lived there were the Moshki people. Moshki is where the name Moscow comes from. And Tubal, which comes from the name, the ancient name Tubolsk, which was a region of eastern Siberia. So, Rosh, Meshech, Tubal, Gog is the prince of Russia, is what's being prophesied there. And along with him, Ezekiel 38 verse 5 says, Persia which we know is Iran. Ethiopia, which we know is Ethiopia. And, and Put, which is Libya. And with them, he says, in verse 6, Gomer, which we think is perhaps Germany. And again, all of these names, they have roots in ancient history. With all its troops. And then Beth Tagarma. Beth Tagarma means house of the far north, which is Turkey which is to the far north of Israel. And so from the remotest parts of the north with all its troops. So you've got Russia, Iran, Libya, Germany, Turkey. These are the ones who come against Israel in the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38. The coalition of Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, is the nations from the four corners of the earth. This is all the world. This is a different fighting force. Now, those called up from the whole world to rebel and follow after by the deception of Satan, now to come down against Jerusalem, against God's people. So, chronologically, they're two different invasions. Geographically, they're two different invasions. And authoritatively, they're two different invasions. Because the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38... The leader of that invasion is Gog, G-O-G, Prince of Rosh. Here, in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 and 8, it's the devil. It's Satan himself. Why then does John allude to Gog Magog? Why does he say this here about this, this rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom? He calls it Gog Magog. Why does he do that? Read on. Verse 8 continues. The number of them, and this is shocking, is like the sand of the seashore. The number of who? The number of people who have lived their lives in the millennial kingdom, but who rebel against Jesus. Such is the heart of humanity. Such is the sin nature. That even living in that perfect age, a massive, massive Rebellion is going to take place. And verse 9, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. The camp of the saints and the beloved city is what we could call Agapeopolis. <laughs> the beloved city is really that. It's polis, a city, and beloved is Agape, Agapeopolis. This is Jerusalem. That God has chosen, that God loves, that God cares for. God says, I put my name there. This is the city, he says again and again in the Hebrew Scriptures, that I have chosen for myself, Jerusalem, God's capital, and without question, as Zechariah called it, it's the apple of his eye. God loves Jerusalem. And yet all the world in this rebellion, what does Satan do? He leads it right up against Jerusalem. 
What's he trying to do? He's trying to poke the apple of God's eye in this final rebellion. Man, Zechariah 1.17 says again, proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, My cities will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. But as this international coalition of rebellion comes against Jerusalem, God puts it down, and I mean immediately, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And that's different than the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38, which tells us that 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 attack ends with a massive earthquake, pestilence, blood, sword turned against sword, torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and brimstone. This time, God's not messing around. He's done. I've had it. Massive fire from heaven, and it is over. And understand... This fire from heaven, crushing the assault, ends it all. Once and for all, finally, Satan's done. This is why I believe John refers back to Gog Magog, because Gog Magog is Satan's Waterloo. You know, when you say something is, oh, that's his Waterloo, well, you're talking about Napoleon's massive defeat, but just because you say, well, that's Rick's Waterloo, doesn't mean that I'm fighting in Napoleon's war. Understand? It's analogous. And that's what Gog Magog is. It's, it's Satan's Gettysburg. Or Satan's little bighorn, the site of Satan's last stand. His Gog Magog is the place of his most epic and eternal defeat. And it's done. And so John references this massive invasion to say this is the final war for Satan where he is put out. Verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. Whereas we pointed out last week, the beast and the false prophet are also, they've been there now for a thousand years, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Do you think Satan's read that verse? I guarantee he has. He knows exactly what is coming. And it's, it's amazing that he continues to try to mess with the world or to go against the things of God when he knows what's coming, but it's also that he's given up and it's the way it is, so I might as well go down swinging and take out as many as I possibly can. Back in Revelation 12, verse 12, it says, Woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. A short time until what? Well, at that point, he will be thrown down. He'll have three and a half years of tribulation to try and mess things up. Then he's bound for a thousand years. Then he's let out again one last time, giving all humanity a final choice. Do you want to choose to live with Jesus forever? You know how he rolls. Or do you want to choose Satan? And again, there's a massive deception that takes place. A short time. A short time until ultimately Satan's eternal judgment, which is in the lake of fire. By the way, there's no boss in hell. There's no one in charge in the lake of fire. Satan is no different than the beast, than the false prophet, than anybody else who goes to hell. He's just there. The Bible indicates, by the way, and this is interesting to me, that we should rejoice in that. I asked our staff earlier today, How should we feel about the fact that Satan is being thrown into hell? How should we feel? 
Well, you know, I mean, we don't want to be too excited, right? Because we don't want to... I am thrilled. Amen. Hallelujah. Satan's going to hell. Woohoo! Praise the Lord. Again, hallelujah. What, it, what happened at the beginning of 19? Her smoke rises forever and ever. Hallelujah. The harlot has been judged. Hallelujah. Satan is going to hell. Hallelujah. But see, we have been trained in this culture. Be careful with your enthusiasm. Don't overplay your, your excitement about good things, about righteousness, about judgment that is legitimate and fair and true. Who would not rejoice in Satan going into the lake of fire? Have you ever heard someone try to posit this? Yeah, but wouldn't it be cool if somehow God saved Satan in the last? Only if you think that it's cool to deny the blood of Jesus on the cross. I mean, that's how serious this is. And what Satan has done in this world and two people, no, I rejoice. I rejoice. And by the way, that's biblical. Again, in Revelation 12, verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them day and night before our God. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens. Rejoice, all heaven and you who dwell in them. And there's a loud shout of joy as Satan is thrown down. Satan's thrown down three times. Right? He was thrown down. He lost his position in heaven, thrown down to earth the first time, cast out with his angels, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. He's thrown down a second time, losing all of his access to heaven, heaven ultimately in the tribulation, thrown down for good to the earth. Then he's thrown down to the pit. Satan's thrown down four times. Because there's going to be a throwdown to the lake of fire when it is final judgment for him. Listen, unrighteousness wants to silence righteousness. You see it in our culture. Unrighteousness wants to silence righteousness. The the, uh, heartbeat abortion bill that just went through in Louisiana today saying that abortions are now illegal if, a, if a, a baby's heartbeat can be detected. And I say, hallelujah, that's the right direction. It's not far enough as far as I'm concerned. But you know, Christians have to be careful. Boy, I'm not sure. Should I post on Facebook that I'm happy about this move in the right direction? Should I, I don't want to upset anybody. And the unrighteous world that we have lived in has driven so hard and shouted so loudly against Christians rejoicing in righteousness that we don't do it much. We kind of keep it to ourselves. Hallelujah. (laughs) We got to win today, you know? Praise the Lord. The Bible says we don't rejoice in unrighteousness, but we do rejoice in righteousness. That we can say amen and hallelujah and celebrate even the demise of evil. 
Don't be ashamed for rejoicing in what is right. Psalm 96 verse 11 says, Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the seas roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Let all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord for He is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and His peoples in faithfulness. And remember what Jesus said, if they keep silent, the rocks are going to cry out. If you don't rejoice, all creation will. Hey, it's okay to rejoice in what's good and righteous and true. And Jesus said, however, John 3.13 or 3.19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And now for all those who rebel with the devil. All those who rebel with the devil, and stay with me on this, this is what I would call the last difficult teaching in Revelation. For all those who rebel with the devil, and we're talking previously in history, and we're talking today, right now, and we're talking about those who rebel during and at the tail end of the millennial kingdom, for all of those, it is judgment day. At the end of the Millennial Kingdom, Judgment Day, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. On the throne on, Lucon, Magon. That's the phrase in the Greek. Thrown on, the throne, Lucon, white, and Magon, Magus. Why these three descriptions? Well, the throne speaks of His royalty. John sees this. So for one thing, it's a literal vision. It's a literal thing. John sees this. A great white throne. It is a throne because of His royalty. It is white depicting His purity. And it is great showing an immensity. Have you ever stood in front of the Lincoln Memorial? That's really cool. We lived just outside of Washington, D.C. for about three years, Cheryl and I. And that's where Hannah was born in Fairfax, Virginia. And we used to go into the city all the time. And, and I, I can envision standing in front of the Lincoln Memorial and that throne that, that Lincoln sits on. It's huge. That's a big deal. That has nothing on this great white throne. But who is it that judges from the throne? Because we're told that there is one who sat upon it. And he's the one who's going to be now doling out judgment. Who is this? John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one on the throne who is now dealing on judgment day. I also believe that this is the moment uh, when Heaven and earth flee away. This is the moment that Peter describes. Let me read it to you in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. By His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of godly men. He says in verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 3, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And people ask, well, when is that? I haven't seen that yet in Revelation because we have, you know, the rapture of the church and we have this tribulation period and we have Jesus come back with the church and then we have this millennial kingdom. Well, when does, when does this earth destruction Peter describes? He goes on and he says, since all these things, verse 11, are to be destroyed in this way, What sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. And I believe what's happening here where He says, and earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them, fled away also means vanished. Gone. So what seems to be happening here is that all people, all angels, all heaven is around the great white throne for this judgment period or this judgment day, the day of God. And while that's taking place, earth and the universe are destroyed. They're gone. Where are we going to live? Revelation 21 and 22. The new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. God says, Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or will come to mind. So that's coming. That's out ahead. But judgment, judgment has to happen first. Verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written, note this, in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Listen carefully. This is the second resurrection. Now, Sunday, we spent some time talking about the first resurrection. And you can look back at chapter, uh, verse 6 of this chapter. Blessed and holy are those who take part in the first resurrection. This is now the second resurrection. It is never named that in Scripture, but it is implied. First resurrection is named. Blessed and holy are those who have a part in it. The second resurrection is simply described right here. Jesus described it. Both, in fact, Jesus said in John 5, 28, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment, the first resurrection and the second resurrection. And understand this, that the first resurrection for everyone who is resurrected in that company, as we talked about Sunday, that's resurrection to eternal life. You're in the first resurrection group started with Jesus, including the church, including tribulation saints, including, I believe, Hebrew or or Old Old Testament saints. All these people who died with faith in God or who were alive when Jesus called are the first resurrection unto eternal life. This is the second resurrection. This resurrection is for all who die without faith in Jesus. And we're talking about a resurrection of people who have died across, at this point, 7,000 years. All of history, through the Millennial Kingdom, wherever they died, by the way, whether on land or, or on sea, 
Because the sea gave up the dead and, and death and Hades gave up the dead. In other words, no matter where, why, when, or how a person dies, God will call all people to account. And if that rattles you as a Christian, hang on a second. God will call all people to account. What about me? You've already had judgment. In fact, there's in the New Testament three judgments talked about. There's this judgment, final judgment at the great white throne. There's also the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 talks about it. I'm not going to go into it tonight. I don't have time. But the judgment seat of Christ, was a, uh, it's a judgment of rewards. It's a judgment of gifts for the saved. If you're at the judgment seat of Christ, you're already saved. You're in. You're there. You will be with Him for eternity. But there are gifts that He's going to give as well. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. Then there's the judgment of nations. Matthew 25. Second judgment mentioned in the New Testament. And then there's the great throne judgment, which is happening right here. Understand Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And that phrase should wake everybody up with him with whom we have to do. All of us have to do with God. We are going to have to do with God. One way or another, either through the salvation of the blood of Jesus, or by coming face to face, we're going to have to do with God. Nobody gets away from that. This judgment, however, is not for those of the first resurrection. Yours was 2,000 years ago at the cross. This judgment is for all those who died outside of faith in Jesus And again, death and Hades, it's a further way of saying all the unrighteous dead. By the way, uh, let me just share this real quickly. The Bible is very specific in its language of what happens when you die. People have confused it. Even Bible translations have confused it a bit. The King James translation, for example, and other versions confuse the words hell and Hades. And they're two different things. Hades is the Greek word that corresponds to the Hebrew word Sheol, and all it means is holding place of the dead. Hell corresponds specifically with the lake of fire, eternal torment. That's not Hades. Hades is the temporary holding place according to Scripture. Jesus was always specific with the word that he used. They didn't just throw around words. The words of Scripture are intentional and inspired and divine, and they're not the way that we talk. You know, we'll use words interchangeably just because we're trying to get our point across. Jesus was always precise and intentional with every word He spoke. So when Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. He's talking about the holding place. Well, the King James translation says the gates of hell. Hell is not the word He used. He used Hades. When Jesus is talking about hell, he will say Gehenna, or he will say Ionius Pur, which means the eternal fire. Matthew 5, 29, he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Gehenna, that's eternal. Man, do whatever you have to do in this life not to go there. 
Or Matthew 25, 41, where he describes the Ionius Pur, the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. That is hell. That is where we have already seen now the false prophet, the beast, and Satan, all three are there. They are now in hell, in the eternal fire, in the lake of fire, and that is final. And as we talked about last week, that is forever. It is forever. Hades is the temporary waiting place of the unrighteous dead. It was, by the way, it was the the, the waiting place of both the unrighteous and the righteous dead before the crucifixion. Jesus talks about Luke 16, look it up later. He talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Some people call it a parable. He never calls it a parable. And he names Lazarus and he says Lazarus dies and he goes, he's a poor man. He goes and he's, he's there in Abraham's bosom in paradise. And a rich man dies and he is on the torment side and a great gulf is between the two sides. Well, that's death before the cross. If you died with faith in Jesus, but you hadn't had full redemption, you couldn't go to be, your spirit couldn't go to be with the Lord. So your spirit would go to Sheol, which is the Old Testament perspective as well. Jesus opens up that perspective of the place of the dead and he says, look, in that place of the dead, in Hades, there is a paradise and there's a torment. But you Bible students may recall this. What happened when Jesus died? Paul says he went down and he went down to Hades and he led captive those who were captive. He led captivity captive. That is, those in the paradise side of Hades who died with faith in Jesus, now redeemed by the blood of the cross... Their spirits go home to be with the Lord. Paul says that we prefer to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. So now, post the cross, if you die with faith in Jesus, guess where your spirit goes? Immediately home to be with Jesus. What about the unrighteous dead? What about people who die without faith in Christ? Hades. But at this time, at the end of the millennial kingdom... Dead, death and Hades give up the dead. So there is a second resurrection. And all people now have to deal with him with whom they have to do. All people are resurrected to stand before God in judgment. I want you to think about this too. Hades, that temporary waiting place, this includes everybody who dies during the millennial kingdom. What do you mean? Okay, I'm going to give you a perspective on this. And those of you who are really studied on this, test me, challenge me on this, let's think this through. But during the millennial kingdom, people will die. I think that the only people who will die in the millennial kingdom will be those who sin. And I'm not talking about, you know, a kid cusses at their parents, drop dead. (laughs) You know... Uh, There's repentance, I believe, grace that will take place as well. But I'm talking about those who sin, the sin of rebellion. Who outwardly and overtly turn against God. Where do you get that? Listen. Think back to Isaiah 65. And just listen to this. Isaiah 65, verse 20. Talking about the kingdom. And we read this passage on Sunday. Amazing passage. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. In other words, if you die at 100, you'll be thought young. And the one who does not reach reach the age of 100 will be accursed. 
And note that language. If you read in your in the NASB, it, it may read that the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed, but the word thought is not there. It's inserted by translators to make it a little easier to, to take. The one who does not reach the age of 100 will be accursed. What's interesting to me is, the, is that phrase, the one who does not reach, it's a single word in the Hebrew. It's the word kote. And kote, literally translated, means the one who misses the mark of a hundred. But my friends, it's a word play. The one who does not reach the age of a hundred, the kote of a hundred. It's a word play. That exact word is idiomatic in the Hebrew for the one who sins. The one who sins. In fact, kote, the same exact word is used in Ezekiel 18.4 and numerous other places. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins will die. The soul who misses the mark. So there's a description there of the millennial kingdom in the kingdom age that the soul who sins will die. That mortal people... Listen, mortal people who put their faith and trust in the Lordship of Jesus Christ may possibly, and I'm I'm not going to be dogmatic, but may possibly just live out the entire millennial kingdom to be ushered into heaven, to be glorified and go on to the new thing. But those dying in the millennial kingdom do so because they overtly rebel against Jesus. And I'm not talking about Gog Magog at the end. But during that, that lifespan, here's how it works. The millennial kingdom begins and people are ushered in. Mortal people, as we talk about Sunday, the faithful of Israel, those survivors of the tribulation, and every last person ushered into the kingdom will be ushered in in faith in Jesus. In other words, the entire world at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, Christian. Every last person will be a follower of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) That's the goal. That's the way it's going to be. But they will then start to have babies who turn into children who can so easily become little sinners. (laughs) Across a thousand years, we're talking 30 to 40 generations, and God alone only knows how many children are born in each one of those generations. So like we talked about, massive population growth. What about all those children now born in the millennial kingdom to their mortal parents? Their parents are teaching them about Jesus. Their parents are talking about Jesus and all that took place and and everything that's happened on earth prior to this and in all the thousands of years. And looking back to the cross and the teachings there, Jesus is there, who were there, you know, in our glorified state, ruling and reigning in righteousness. Everything's good. These kids are growing up. But these kids, while Satan is bound and sin is, for the most part, it's curtailed, They still have a sin nature. They still have choice. And so what's going to take place at that time, it it, it fascinates me to even think about. Jesus reigns in perfect goodness, and yet, well, two things to know. All people will be obligated to be obedient to His rule. Because His rule will be the standard for all the earth. And everybody's going to be obligated to be obedient, at least outwardly. you got to obey, okay? And people will. 
But it's like it is today that Jesus is not going to force faith in anyone's heart. Man, I hope I don't lose you tonight because we've got so many things shooting through my head here. But one of them is this. This helps explain faith to us. See, we think of faith as believing in what we don't see. You know, faith is trust. We've been over and over this. Faith is trusting Jesus. People in the millennial kingdom will see Jesus. The question is, will they trust Him? Will they put their faith in Him? And many will. And many will not. Oh, many will obey the rules. They'll be under the law. Sin curtailed. But in the heart, I don't like this. I don't like being told what to do. I want to do things my way. I'm not coming. Oh, man, I'm not going to do anything about this guy. Just get in big trouble. Doesn't Jesus know that? Yeah, but Jesus doesn't force faith. He doesn't force, force trust in anybody. It's not how he, he does things. And by the way, that's the measure of God's love. It's never forced. It's never coerced. His lordship is offered and must be chosen. And so it will be in the millennial kingdom that the soul that sins outwardly, outward rebellion, the soul that sins will die. But the soul that is inwardly rebellious is going to be revealed as Satan's last stand. At that point, all bets are off. Massive rebellion takes place. Now back to the Scripture, back to Revelation 20, both the outwardly and the inwardly rebellious will go to Judgment Day. The unrighteous. And again in verse 12, he says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is of life. So think of it this way. There's a table out before him, and on, on one side of the table are all these books. And on the other side of the table is just one. Book of life and books. How are the dead judged? They are judged from the things written in the books. According to their deeds. These are the books of deeds. That's the book of life. Why is the book of life there? Well, the book of life holds the names of all who've ever believed on Jesus for their salvation. Your name is in the book of life if you trust Jesus. My name is in the book of life. And so that's so cool to me. And it's there right now. But there are many, many books of deeds. That is books that have perfect records of every action, good and bad, of every single person who believes that they can save themselves. And anyone who says, I'm a good person, okay, well, your judgment is coming. And you will stand before God and He's going to open up books and you're going to go over that with God in perfect fairness and righteousness. I'm good enough. Okay, let's see. And everything that was ever done, every action, good or bad, is going to be right there. Now, I think it's possible right at this time, we will see also the glorification of saints who trusted in Jesus through that kingdom age. And maybe that's why the book of life is there and is opened, because it immediately supplants the book of deeds. Open up the book of life, name's there, then you're not in the book of deeds. So don't even go to the books. Just go to the book. And at this judgment, the book of life, in all judgment, the book of life erases the actions of the individual in favor of one deed, the crucifixion of Jesus. Isn't that what you want? 
I tell you what, I look back over my life, there's stuff that if I want to dwell on it, I would be sitting in a pool of thick, dark shame. I don't, I don't like to think back to previous sin. Behaviors when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult, last week. I don't like thinking about those things. <laughs> I don't want anybody... Think about the things that you've done you don't want anybody to know. Oh, I'm so thankful nobody saw me do... It's all in the book of deeds. Unless your name is in the book of life. In which case, there is no record of you in the book of deeds. That's salvation. No worries. It's all gone. Your name in the book of life because you trusted in Jesus. Psalm 69 talks about the book of life. It's a psalm of the Christ. In fact, Psalm 69 is Jesus speaking. And you might just notate that if you ever want to go look at this. Jesus in that psalm says, it says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. Well, that's Jesus speaking. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Well, that's Jesus speaking from the cross. And in this same psalm, He says, Psalm 69 verse 26, For they have persecuted Him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out of the book of life. And may they not be recorded with the righteous. The only way to be recorded with the righteous is through Jesus and through trust in Him. Whether now, in the past, or even ahead in the kingdom, it's trusting Jesus. Jesus said in Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase His name from the book of life. Now, we're almost done, but this has to be said. And it's hard to say. There is only one destination for the dead who are called into this judgment. One destination, and it is the lake of fire. Well, that's not fair. Why is this? It's completely fair. Because God's opening up to all the deeds ever done. You want to have that argument. You want your day in court. You can have it at judgment day. I prefer to stand behind Jesus and say, I'm with Him. But this is, it's hard teaching. It's not teaching we like to go to, but verse 14 Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. First death? What's the first death? Well, that's just physical death. That's anyone who just dies. You know, the body that dies. But that's not an eternal death. It's a a one-time deal. If you die in Christ, you're going to be raptured in Christ. That's the first death. The second death is this one. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now let's be serious for just a moment here. Jesus said, Matthew 28, verse, or Matthew 10, sorry, Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus knew what He was saying. On the one hand, I always like the first half 
half of that verse, don't fear those who just kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. I'm like, yeah, I like that. You know, take me out, whatever, but I'm still going on. But it's the second half. Fear him who is able to destroy soul and body in hell. And it's verses like that that make people say, oh, that's fear-mongering. You know, turn or burn. I ask what you Christians do. You throw out that fear-mongering stuff. Listen, I'm okay with that. Huh? I'm okay with fear-mongering if I have to. I am to the point, I'm just being honest with you all, I am no longer worried about causing fear or anxiety over hell or eternal loss if it'll save someone. If it'll open a heart for salvation, so be it. If that's what it takes, then that's what I'm willing to do. It's too important. And I think that we here at the end of the age, it's incumbent on us as followers of Jesus not to dance around things, but to be honest, loving truthful but honest with people about what is being faced. Well, I don't want to scare someone to heaven. Why not? Do you think anyone in heaven is going to come up to you and go, I can't believe you scared me into this place. (laughs) Exactly. Well said. Rather scare them into heaven than love them into hell. It's it's re- Understanding, it's, it's a paradigm shift from what our culture says love is. Love is let anybody do anything they want to do. That's love. Just accept them for who they are and the sin that they're soaking in. Ah, that's love. That's not love. That's easy. You know, it's comfortable maybe for me not to have to deal with anyone or where they're at. Well, I don't want to scare anybody. Yes, you do if it'll open a heart. And I'm not, please don't. Don't go out of here and start going door to door. You're going to hell. You're going to hell. You know what I mean? It's not what we're getting at here. I'm saying don't be afraid to talk about what is true. Because it may be the momentary fear of going to hell that opens someone up long enough to hear about the great love of God that will save them for all eternity. I'll go there if I have to. And anyone, and this is the point at the end of this chapter, anyone whose name is not found in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. As verse 10 tells us, tormented day and night forever and ever. And downplaying that may cause someone to go right there. Let's deal with the truth. And for anyone who is upset by this, or calls this teaching harsh or unfair or mean-spirited, let's come right back to the moment and answer this question, how long has God put this off? How long has God waited? And why does He wait still? 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And when we repent, we turn from our sin and we turn to God. And Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our sins from us. My my favorite quote of of D.L. Moody, I've shared many times here at the bridge, He who is born once will die twice. First death and second death. He who is born twice will die once. And I always add, if at all. Because he who is born twice is born of the flesh and born of the Spirit. Born again. 
And either we will die once and then be resurrected in the first resurrection, or we will never die because we happen to be alive at the time of the rapture of the church. Got to be born twice. Got to be born again. Jesus said again, this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. In that same chapter, in fact, in that same conversation, he's there with Nicodemus in the late hours, Nick at night, in, Nick at, in, in Jerusalem, right? And he began the conversation, just listen, don't turn there, just, just listen to this. He began the conversation with Nicodemus saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. By the way, by the way, side note, the kingdom... The thousand-year reign of Christ is just the beginning. It's the beginning of forever. We go into the kingdom in a glorified state. Our eternity has begun. And then from there, the kingdom continues on. The kingdom of God for all eternity. And there's even more that's coming. I have to wait for that. We'll get there. But Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He can't do that, can he? And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The conversation continues, and in verse 16, Jesus says, perhaps the most famous verse of all history, for God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So if you're talking to someone about hell, and you're actually looking at Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, and the lake of fire and all the unrighteous dead are cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. Before you finish that conversation, you head directly to John 3.16. Because that's the deal. That we shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Saved from what? That's a good question. Saved from what? Wrath. I didn't hear you, Susie. What did you say? Same thing. Punishment of sin. Listen, we're not saved from hell. Do you understand? We are saved from the wrath of God. Which is a different... It's bigger. We're saved from wrath. Which is why annihilationism... Remember we talked about that last week? The idea that you go to hell for a certain amount of time and when your sin is all paid up then you just cease to exist? It doesn't work. Because if that were the case, then you are being saved from wrath. The only way to be saved from wrath is by faith in Jesus Christ. And then you are saved for all eternity from the wrath of God. And so Jesus says... God didn't send the Son in the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light 
so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That is, produced by God. We don't use the word wrought that much. W-R-O-U-G-H-T. His deeds have been wrought, produced by God. As we conclude tonight, let me put something together here. When we talked about Sunday, again, the idea of the minus and the talents. God has given to every one of us to some degree. Some have big talents. Others have just a handful of minus. He's given to you. So the question now is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with what He's given to you? And and I know that there are several of you, you're you're working that out. Good. You're thinking it through and you're, you're kind of struggling with that. Let me show you once again, He who practices the truth comes to the light. Your part in investing what God has given you, man, practice what's true. Come to the light. Come to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Seek the kingdom. Be in His Word. Be in fellowship. Be in prayer. So that His deeds may be manifested or seen as having been produced in God. Here's the beauty of it. That as I am focusing on Jesus... He is investing minus through me. As I am keeping my eyes on the kingdom, as I'm seeking the kingdom and His righteousness, He's investing talents through me. The righteous deeds, the righteous deeds are done by Him through me. And I can tell you by experience in my life, the more I focus on Jesus the more I discover that I actually have been doing some things He wanted me to do. (laughs) Remarkable. I've been loving my wife the way He wants me to love my wife. I've been talking about Him the way He wants me to talk about Him. Suddenly my deeds are manifested as having been wrought in God. They're seen as having been produced by Him. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's the fruit of what? The Spirit. Meaning what? Meaning the Spirit is in me producing the fruit. And so rather than focusing on the fruit, and especially focusing on the deeds that I didn't do before, how about focusing on Jesus Christ and keeping your eyes on the Kingdom and being about what the Kingdom is about? Just do that. Don't worry about the investment of minas and talents and deeds, Jesus will begin to work that in you and through you. One last thing I'll say to you. I see this in people. It's interesting to me. I, I will get comments from people saying, well, I just, I just don't know that I'm doing any of that. And I, I step back and go, are you kidding me? I see it in you. Don't you see faith in other people? Don't you see other people doing things and you think, wow, she's so godly. Wow, he is, he is such a follower of Jesus. And those same people that we see faith in are going, man, I just don't know if I'm doing anything for Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Seek first the kingdom. And let Him produce the righteousness in you. Father, this is my prayer for us tonight. I thank You for Your Word to us. It is a heavy word and, and we've, we've moved through it, but this whole idea of that final judgment... Father, may it not be for anybody in this place tonight. May we, Lord, not be part of the second resurrection to the second death because we have put our faith in You. By trusting Jesus, 
We are a first resurrection fellowship. And I pray we will keep that in mind, take it to heart. That again, we will not look at ourselves for our salvation. We will look to You. And Jesus, would You produce in us the very things You desire? Will You work through us in ways we don't even see or know? We don't have to. We don't even have to see You at work in us. We just ask that You would be. In Jesus' name. Amen.